Hi, I'm Trin Collins, and welcome to the podcast, More Friends. Here, we will be reconnecting with the artists and writers who have come to the island over the past 10 years. Lighthouse Works is a nonprofit dedicated to giving amazing people the time and space to focus on their work. Each month on the podcast, I'll interview a former fellow, diving deeply into who they are and the themes they keep returning to in their work. We aim to share with you our friends, these lovely and marvelous thinkers and makers who we've met over the years. After or during the episode, make sure to visit our website, lighthouseworks.us, for more content, including images or links to some of the topics we cover. So let's get started. Today's episode is with an old friend of mine, Elizabeth Tabergen, who also created our public art commission called Soft Weight. Our conversation really deepened my understanding of that piece and how it's radical in its flatness. We discuss her work, home renovations, and the brilliance of Ursula Le Guin. This one isn't to be missed, and make sure to go to our website to see images and links. Thanks for talking with me today. I feel like I know you. I've known you for so many years. What, 10 years? Yeah. How Isn't old that... were we when we met? I guess I was probably like 25. Yeah. Maybe. That's more um, than 10 years now. <laughs> I'm not a numbers person. <laughs> <laughs> 11 years. That's crazy. That's crazy. Okay. So you did this public art sculpture called Soft Weight. And I want to talk a little bit about that today, but I also want to talk a little bit about some of the previous works that feel connected to that, some of these bigger ideas. And I wanted to start with your press release that you wrote. Mm -hmm. You talk a little bit about like remembering going to visit your dad on the sub base in Groton. Yeah. And will you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So my dad was deployed on a nuclear submarine for the first several years of my life. He was out to sea, despite being a six foot four man who could barely fit into (laughs) a submarine. (laughs) And so I was actually born at that sub base. I was born at the Naval Hospital in Groton and then went there many times subsequently. And I think the experience that I was talking about in the press release was this experience of seeing a sub out of water and like touching the cone of the nose and remembering being so overwhelmed by the size of it. And also just loving that round, like bulbous shape and feeling this really like profound scale shift or like disconnect from seeing the boats out in the water where you can hardly see any of it. And then thinking about how most of what's going on with the submarine is totally beneath the surface. And I remember being like, I was really little. I was probably like three or four years old. And so I remember like asking to be boosted up so that I could touch more of the nose cone because they were working on it. So there was like a scaffold set up and I wanted, I just wanted to be close to this weird boat. They are weird, particularly because they're matte black. Yeah. So they're this kind of like very like anti-nature surface. It's like your eyes, I can't adjust to this. Yeah. They're totally nuts. And then you have the reverse happening where you're going inside the sub and (coughs) excuse me. 
And it's everything's like super claustrophobic. Exactly. Everything inside is tiny. And it's really like almost, I found it even as a kid, like almost unbearable to be inside the submarine. And I can't imagine like being on there for an extended period of time. Yeah, it's something that's so big and so small in so many ways at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's it's this idea of scale becomes relational, right? So like you only yeah. <clears throat> know that something is like huge because you're next to it. And then also it's next to other things. So it's... yeah. When I was out on our very small boat in the <laughs> Thames, which is in New London, where all the submarines come out, this huge submarine was going under the bridge and it looks so huge because of the bridge, like yeah. in relationship to the bridge. But then you see them out just in Fisher's Island Sound, heading out to Long Island Sound, and they seem so much more manageable or even some of them pass you when you're in the ferry and stuff. And even then yeah. you think, whoa, they're disconcerting and they're totally weird, but they're, you can't grasp how big they are. And I think that's a big part of your press release is this idea that like the ocean is like vast and like our ability to fathom it is completely limited. Yeah, totally. Like during the install, when I saw a couple of submarines go by it actually felt really special. And maybe it doesn't really feel special to you as like an island resident, but it also <laughs> is like, like you're not, you have to work to spot it even actually. <laughs> yeah. Because no, it's mostly I always, submerged. <laughs> I always think they're special. I like this idea of scale as being all this, like almost like a problem that something yeah. has to solve. Right. Like, I feel like your piece is a little bit trying to address the problem of scale. Yeah, totally. Because the site itself is bizarre, right? It's it's on the, the mouth of the Silver Eel Cove. You've got like these wooden piles or dolphins. And sometimes the ferry's there for scale. Sometimes it's not. <laughs> yeah. And um, anything that's like up against the water like that just looks so small. It does. It really does. And then does. those dolphins actually are also really large. They're like, those are really tall. When you first came to the site, what were your first impressions? Did you know immediately, oh, I know what I'm going to do? Or did it take a while? I think it took a while, actually, because I was first trying to think about that pad. And the pad, that pad is really challenging because it is like sticking up. And the footprint is so small that I think it really lends itself to verticality. But I think when I was thinking about the site, I wanted to make something that like had that sense of being a little unknown or like revealing itself over time in this way that felt like it was more in relationship to a horizon and like less in relationship or less competing for scale with the ocean and the dolphins and like all of the stuff that's going on right there that's so wild that makes it such a challenging spot to put something right yeah <laughs> because yes. it feels like you can't just put something there you need to make something that's like working with the site <laughs> or so not working like working just against it so much that then it's <laughs> okay so to put this in context we have always used this sort of like weird geological pad thing that is next to the cove and then this year 
we threw Elizabeth for a curve by just saying, we've got this really big pad and we think the work could be cooler if it were bigger. So (laughs) we created lots of problems for ourselves and particularly for you by scaling up. Do you remember that sheet of paper that Nate sent that was like the piece scaled up and all the dimensions and I feel like you and I kept being like but let's go for the biggest one yeah (laughs) and I'm really glad we did it because actually the scale that it ended up being it was pretty ungainly I feel to get it finished it was yeah it was a big undertaking because I think that it ended up being like four times the size of that original location still (laughs) really four times the size okay because that little that other spot is like really small actually was it nine by nine maybe ten by yeah it's nine by nine but then it has also like the kind of crumbling corner so i know yeah yeah that's really wild to think about and so that was is that the challenge that you when you think about how the piece came together you like oh that was the hardest part of it or what was the hardest i think that the site is super challenging yes and then i think it was a little it was tricky for me to think also about how people could interact with it and it was really important to me to make something that people could interact with in a way that was not only visual and i think also the changing the site just moving it to the left and making it taking it off of that little bit of concrete also made it maybe a little bit more inviting. But it's tricky. It's tricky to think about something. I was, yeah, it was tricky to think about something that felt really in my sculptural language that also would have an interactive element that wasn't, didn't feel like a one-liner or something. I don't know if that makes sense. I think public art is particularly challenging. It is, yeah. I feel there are so many tempting things to do with it that feel like one-liners. I don't know. It's it, I think, because there's this idea that who is the public and like how do you envision the public? And I feel like that's an impossible question to know how everyone's going to interact with something. Yeah, exactly. And also sometimes like something that feels like a one-liner works best, actually. (laughs) That's the other thing. (laughs) (laughs) Like one of my favorite pieces of public art from when I was younger was this piece that was like in the shadows of a Calder piece in this plaza in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And it wasn't the Calder piece that I loved. There's a piece like tucked back behind in the sculpture garden that's like this very bizarre super sculptural thing but it's basically like a massive swing and that feels like a one-liner but I loved that thing yeah yeah and it also depends on like how the same swing feels the swing feels like not inviting and I don't know you probably love that piece for so many more reasons than just one line of the swing yeah I mean I think I definitely loved that it was like not the center of attention. People didn't go there to see that swing. And people often would overlook it because they would go there to see the Calder piece. There is some, because I do think people, (laughs) this one person said, okay, so now the pedestal's here. What's Mm -hmm. going on top of it? 
Yeah, exactly. And we were like, no, this is Nothing. it. <laughs> What's going on top of it? I you, know. We were like, we you are <laughs> so long putting this together. I, the labor that went into that piece really made me <laughs> think a lot about it and how that is part of the meaning you had put on your list of things that you were thinking about Martin Purrier and I was reading a little bit about him because I, I though I like his work a lot I really just hadn't spent much time thinking about it and mm-hmm. I didn't really know a lot about him I I guess he he thought that like how something came to be was like super important to yeah. to its meaning yeah and that seems like pretty on point for this piece. I feel like <laughs> the so the piece is this woven thing with all these like interlock. Everything's interlocking. And you had to like preconceive everything to be interlocking, and then there are all these slots for things to go through. And so it felt like the execution of all that pre-thinking was like it was laborious. It was so intense. Yes. You were with your sewing machine on site. We were like pre-measuring things, taking it off, then sewing it again. It was wild. It was wild. It was crazy. That was like a lot of long days in the sun with you and Nate and Claudia all helping so And your friends, all very helpful. And Erica and Sarah. Erica. MVP. Yeah. Do you think that this was the most laborious piece? What's the most laborious the most laborious piece that I've ever made. Yeah, at this scale. At this scale, I definitely have made some very laborious pieces that are very that were very small. That piece at Hunter was like ended up being a major group effort with the skim coating. Okay. Yeah, but that, like stare rotunda. Yeah, but this one, this was really intense. I think it was really intense also because of the way that like a lot of those pieces had to be met like the, the woven part had to be measured and it had to be like run through two times and then like spending the whole day like on the back on my back in the sand like doing leaving the <laughs> bottom of it which I'm so glad that I did and I'm so glad that everyone was so supportive of that because I think it does change the piece to have that bottom be woven <laughs> I think it does change the piece and I'm sure Martin would agree Yeah, I also think that the piece is both inviting and non-inviting. It's like you get up on the piece, but you like, there are no stairs. You have to hoist yourself up there. And then when you get up there, there are really only these like pockets of comfort. Yeah. I feel like this piece, the one liner that this piece would be, I think, (laughs) if it were a one liner would be, you get up there and it's smooth sailing. You just it's just holding you and you're totally comfortable. Yeah, yeah. And I think that it's both frustrating and kind of interesting that you get up there and you're like trying to find a comfortable <laughs> spot and you do, but you really ha- you got to work for it. Yeah, you have to work for it. And I think the other thing, I think the other thing that could be a one-liner about it also is like maybe the promise of some other sort of vista once you're up there. But it's not that mm-hmm. high, so it actually doesn't really change your view that much. Just a little. Yeah. Just a little. 
Yeah. And the straps are so funny. I was thinking a lot about straps because I feel like a lot of your previous work have these sort of ratchety strap things like shell. I feel like shell is really connected to this. It feels, it looks like it. And you know that the straps are to hold something in, to restrain something, but also to support something. It's like this idea is pretty interesting. Yeah. The straps and shell actually were latex, which could have been oh. really exciting for this piece, but I think it would have just totally deteriorated <laughs> in the salt, <laughs> the salty air. <laughs> or actually, I know. it would have totally deteriorated. <laughs> That's another thing that people need to remember about this site is that it's outside. It's getting like complete salt on it every day. The sun is beating on it. It's not inside. It's not in a covered pavilion or whatever. It's not even a short term yeah. thing. It's like a couple months. Yeah. It's got to take a, a beating. There's a lot going on with the site. But I, yeah, I think that there was, I really, with that piece shell, I think I was thinking like pretty narratively about that piece actually. Um, but I wanted to have this sort of suspended weight in the center. And I think that, that happens a little bit with soft weight too. Like I was really excited when I was observing people interacting with it or like people sitting on it and the way that you can see like parts of their back or like their butt, like pressing through those, the woven surface <laughs> and you can see like the sink, like you, like the sculpture, like it does like receive you in this way, right? Like it has kind its of. limits and exactly. it's got its heart. It's got hard spots on it and it's like a structure that's under tension, but it also gives way a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's this really strange give and take that I think gives it a lot more. First I was mad at it. I was like, <laughs> I want you to be more comfortable. And then, <laughs> this is not the comfort I was promised. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Even the title yeah. really, it promises something. And then I think, no, but I think it ends up being a richer experience with the piece because it, all these different size pockets and even then the wovenness because it's all hand done has each one has different tension. Yeah. It makes it a little unpredictable. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe going back to this idea of memory because I feel like that's a big part of a lot of your work it feels yeah. you mentioned Dylan Trigg and I only skimmed some of the stuff because I was like okay this needs more time from me than I can give it right now <laughs> yes. but it seems really great and I wanted to talk to you about what you took from that book but also How does memory operate for you in your brain? That's a good question. I think definitely like in in soft weight and in some of the other recent work, I think the some of the narratives that the pieces are pulling from formally and abstracting are related to memory or to like intimate moments experienced with objects but in this way that's like corrupted or like somehow becomes like more perverted. And I think that is like one of the most interesting things about the way that the mind works to me. Like 
the way that recall deteriorates a memory. But totally. does it, but as an artist, I'm like, does it make it richer? Maybe every time I imagine that, like I'm imagining something new and maybe that's okay because I'm not a scientist. So I don't have to be concerned with facts <laughs> in that way. <laughs> I'm like, maybe it's actually better now that my memory, now that my memory of something has deteriorated because I've thought about it too time, too many times or something. <laughs> yeah. Or it might crystallize into something that actually has more like meaning to you like the things yeah. that you hold on to or you repeat yeah that is like an arrow towards something important yeah yeah and maybe it's not like a true recollection of events but maybe it's giving you something that's more important I have not a great memory. I have a great memory for certain things, but I would say the sort of broad scheme and like scope of things, I'm very bad. And <laughs> I feel like in a way that is why I make a lot of some things is like to be like to capture certain things and certain moments where I'm like, oh, yeah. that's cemented in there. Yeah. Um, but I also think that people's memory work differently. So like some people have those memories where it's, I think, few people but they run like a movie yeah yeah that's crazy yeah and people i feel like use memory differently like some people like oh my god i recently read this that some people can't this is a tangent excuse me no, some people, go for it <laughs> some people can't see things in their head huh they like so like can't. the memory doesn't work with images no so for example no they like this is such a weird example they'll have less trouble grieving if someone dies because they don't have these memories of them so if you say to someone like think of a car like picture a car in your head what color is it if they're like some people are just like literally it's blank huh that is so interesting and like that no. super affects how people like experience the world. Yeah. That's so fascinating. So yeah, I feel I mean, like I think that's super that it all I think that also to me relates to the different ways that people dream too. Sure. Because like I feel like some people's minds like latch onto very different sensations or like things in the world. Like I wonder if somebody who doesn't who doesn't have a memory that's very image-based, I wonder what their memory is based in. Is it based in like smell or sounds or is it like textual or something? Like what do you, th- what is somebody like that thinking when they're trying to picture a car? Do they see like the word car? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but it does, all this talk makes me feel like, oh my God, we're all just like these weird flesh brains that are unconnected. You feel very isolated, right? Because we're all trying to be like, is this memory that I had of our experience together talking online <laughs> the same? Yeah. It's not. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> and that's lonely. <laughs> it is lonely, but I think that's why also communication is exciting or like being in relationship with people is exciting because it's like at, at our core, we all are profoundly alone (laughs) and so like so but then having a relationship with somebody is really profound because then it's it's not that's like a third thing 
<laughs> it's not just you. It's not just the other person. It's a whole own third thing that's like neither, <laughs> but it's both. Uh, a shared thing. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit about Shell because I had read in the little thing you sent me that it was partly based on your time being homeless. Yes, that's correct. I never knew you had any time without a home. (laughs) I did. (laughs) Yeah, that central part of that piece, which is the more narrative sculptural element, I would say, is based on this trunk that I lived in, in a car. Because I lived for a while in this car, and then I lived in a squat in New York after undergrad (laughs) where'd you go to undergrad again i went to covenant college in lookout mountain georgia and i yeah my family is very religious and i went to this religious school and that is how i ended up living on the street because i am gay (laughs) (laughs) yes and that doesn't those two worlds are worlds in conflict (laughs) they really are i was listening to Another thing that you sent me, God, what's his name? Mike, the public counterpublic guy. Oh, yeah, publics and counterpublics. Yeah. I was listening to an interview he did, and he was talking about his background. Do you know anything about it? I don't actually. What is his background? I guess he was brought up in an evangelical household. And so much of his first book, I guess, was inspired by this, by his experience. Yeah. And so he actually went to a religious undergrad and he talked a lot about how like their intense focus on the Bible allowed him to, I guess, use that similar focus in like interpreting other texts. Yeah. But I don't know. You should listen to it because it was interesting. I was like, Oh, okay. That is really interesting. Yeah. yeah. You should send that to me. I'm very I will. It was that. just like random YouTube thing. And the interviewer is amazing. I'm like, I want to see what else he's doing cuz he's I can't be described. There's a mustache. Yeah. <laughs> That's all yeah. I can say. That's super fascinating cuz I feel like I my worldview still is really informed by these theological ideas actually. And like parts of my past, but I try to like, just I've tried to carry with me like the parts that really speak to me, which is like this sort of worldview and thinking about the way that things are connected and like deep philosophical inquiry. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. (laughs) I think that there are ways in which like when you're brought up and you're like, certain beliefs and ways of thinking it's like it's really hard to unplug any of that it's almost like you just have to get a different appliance to run next to that appliance exactly that's like i tried nothing's getting unplugged (laughs) i tried to get rid of that appliance and it just keeps showing back up it's just still here i don't know but it's interesting that he would be talking about it in terms of an obsession with a specific text or like this attention to detail that is like really just intense attention to detail or something. Yeah. He also talks a lot about like this idea that, oh, I'm going to butcher it. But he was talking about how, I guess, 
evangelical Christianity is so much about talking to the stranger and this idea of the relationship between like this reaching out to the unknown stranger. So I, I just thought that was really interesting idea. Yeah. I think that is, yeah. Like that, like missionizing impulse also like, of course has a dark side and like a side that's really tied to colonial histories. But I think at its root, there could be a way of framing it in terms of something that feels a little more positive, right? Which is like simply like a reaching towards another. Was there like that's very reductive, (laughs) but (laughs) was there proselytizing in when you grew up? Was it about bringing in people? Mostly, yeah, but I think at Covenant that felt a little more complicated actually in a way that I found a little more like intellectually interesting because it was a, it was sometimes about bringing people in but it also was just about having conversation and learning about what other people think and then learning to talk to people that think things that are wildly different than what you think and it also was about giving gifts and not expecting something back building houses for people or like doing some sort of like relief work okay and not asking to be a hero because you're doing that or something it's just like you're just doing the lord's work but (laughs) (laughs) and that should be rewarded enough on the back (laughs) yeah but it's like you're just yeah you it's not you're not doing it really for yourself or because there's any expectation of reward yeah huh yeah i was brought up catholic so it was a little bit like don't talk to me i'm we're in church (laughs) you're in your own zone you're standing up you're sitting down you're saying some stuff yeah it's all very secretive very private although i think the church has changed i think the catholic church has changed over time to compete and get more people and make it sexier but it's not yeah it does really feel like much more emphasis on the private actually in catholicism totally like the reformed church huh i've actually never thought about it that way before you are building out your studio are you done are you building out your house your studio is done the studio and the house are it's a live work space (laughs) (laughs) so it's coming along it's getting very close I just did this crazy Moroccan plaster bathroom with my friend Oscar Cornejo that is was just bananas. It took forever. Is this the one where you have to rub the river stone on it? Yes. I had to go to the river and find flat stones. <laughs> quartzes. They needed to be a hardness of seven or greater. <laughs> they had to be quartzes? A flat well, They had to be a hardness of seven or greater. And the easiest thing to pick out in the river that I know is that hard is a quartz. So I was looking for the quartzes because they're translucent. So they're easy to see. And then, yeah, you you rub it like one hour per square foot. <laughs> that hurts my brain which is a lot of hours when your bathroom is 195 square feet of walls oh no but that is done now and actually earlier today i was soaping the wall you soap it three times a day in the first 10 days to help with the waterproofing with this olive oil soap 
And then the next thing, that wall is going to be like ready to go next week so the plumbers can come in. And then I'm going to be able to use the toilet. (laughs) (laughs) And have water running from a tap instead of a hose. So is the idea (laughs) that this is a waterproof wall now? It is, yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And it's like an ancient technique and it's made with lime. So it's like highly antiseptic. Because nothing can grow in lime. Yeah, it's very beautiful, I have to say. (laughs) Why did you move out there to yeah that's a good question i had the studio in the miller building which you were in probably right in queens and long island city i did you probably yeah you were there. yeah but the so bathroom was that, in the hall yeah the bathroom was in the hall yeah i remember with that. that weird shower in the corner so i had i was in that place and then we were evicted because unfortunately, as it turned out, the guys that we had our sublet from who had the 20 year lease stopped paying the landlord and were pocketing all of our money. And oh. we paid them because we were paying rent and they weren't giving it to the landlord. Oh, and cool. so we were evicted. <laughs> and so I was looking for studio space in New York and I couldn't afford it. I could afford like something, but I was just like, I think that. I love New York so much and I love being there, but I was like, I think that I need, I don't think that I'm done making this big work and I need to find a way to be able to afford space. And then my friends saw a listing for the building that I now own on Craigslist Wow! for this old mechanics garage that was for sale for $60,000. And she tried to convince so many people to buy it. And the guy who lived there prior the who owned it prior to me was a hoarder. And so it was really crazy in there. It was like how much was it listed for? Sixty thousand dollars. Just sixty. Yep. And nobody wanted it because the guy was a little bit. He was hard to deal with. He was difficult to communicate with. Besides sure. being a hoarder, also, and I think people would just go inside and be like, "This is crazy." It was hard to even tell what was going on. But I went inside and I was like, "This is a big box. Perfect." Is it a <laughs> it's metal so building? Cheap. It's a block building. It's a CMU building, like concrete masonry unit. And then it has these two massive roll-up doors because it was at one point a gas station and then a mechanic shop and then a country store. And then this guy, Steve, owned it for years. And it just he just let it go into disrepair. And so it took a really long time to buy it from him. There was a lot of back and forth. It took two years because he was he would drink and send me these emails that were totally like off the chain and he kept being like i'm not gonna sell it and i was just like whatever dude just make up your mind yeah but i ended up getting it eventually for fifty five thousand dollars. oh and oh my, so my mortgage is 300 dollars a month and it has taken me a long time to renovate it but i'm like for 300 dollars a month i now have a place to live and to work and that makes me feel really free because I'm like, if I, right now I teach full time, but I'm like, if I didn't have that job or if I wasn't rehired or for whatever, I'm like coming up with $300 a month doesn't feel that hard. You'll just build <laughs> beautiful furniture and yeah. <laughs> make way more than $300 a month. I know. Yeah. So it was just incidental that it was like near my friend's place and like listed on Craigslist and it's not that far from the city. And so I was like. Even if I just get this, I was paying more than $300 a month just for storage in the city. 
and in New Jersey. And so I was like, even if I just buy this and put all my stuff in it and don't touch it, still worth it. Yeah, you got to wonder, like, how you keep the art scene alive in New York if it's just so expensive? How do you keep the artists there? It's really difficult. I don't know. I think that people just compromise. And I think that compromise is fine. And, like, I understand wanting to compromise to stay in the city, but I was not prepared to do that. And so I just made a different compromise (laughs) of going to the country. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think it's very brave, actually, because I think a lot of people are afraid of leaving New York. Yeah. But I think if it's to serve you better and serve the work better, then it's ultimately going to be better. I hope so. I think it's I think it's been I think it's a good decision. Yeah. And if one day I feel like I can have a studio in New York, maybe I would, but probably not. It's just so much easier to make big work out here. Here's another thing that I read that I thought was really great. And the carrier bag theory of fiction that you sent me. Oh, yeah. I um, love that. I love that. By Ursula Le Guin. Yeah. It's so funny, too, actually. (laughs) It's so funny. I actually, I was thinking, like, the tone of this is so cool. Yeah. It's, like, flippant, but also super smart. Yeah. It's, like, really hilarious, but there's actually, like, a lot being said. (laughs) so much and i feel like every time she talks about says novel i just think sculpture correct me if i'm wrong but i feel like she's sort of saying like our origin stories are all about the sword and the fighting and the all these tools and not about the like the bag like this other thing that's super important but obviously very domestic or had to do with women yeah had to do with taking care of each other, the sort of the tool of the bag or whatever. Yeah. Which is interesting also because she's making the point that prehistoric peoples were mostly hunter gatherers. And so like that bag was really important for gathering. It's not like a heroic object. (laughs) No, it's also an object that decomposes with time. So as us looking back it's like i guess we can find an arrowhead and we can find all these That's things true. that were like a ne- neolithic axe or something but yeah they just are gone and i just it made me think so much of sculpture and this especially public art sculpture that are just like <laughs> big phallic sculptures yeah and it's that's the impulse, right? It's like, that's yeah. the that's that's the that's best. the trope, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like the soft weight. When I read this, I was like, oh, I was like, soft weight is the bag. <laughs> it's the bag. It's such the bag. It even looks like a bag. <laughs> it even kind looks like of. a bag. It's like holding people. It's gathering people and. It just clicked. So I thought this was actually a really great read in in connection to your piece. Yeah, I'm glad you read it. (laughs) Me too. It was really fun. It's so good. Yeah, but I think it does really relate to the piece. It's like more about this horizontality and like relationality rather than something trying to, yeah, do this thing that public art often does, which is like this trope of verticality 
or like the tropes of monumental art or even like the trope of modernism or something yeah, like, like trying to make something... the most the biggest impression and yeah or the making starkest... it the most impenetrable thing or something yeah like something that's just so big and solid and that doesn't give way at all <laughs> and it is radical i think to do something that's quiet that kind of like maybe sits in with the horizon and then you come around to it and you see it and it unfolds over time yeah yeah I think I was thinking about soft weight as like just a very different kind of invitation and you know that I love to make big work (laughs) and I make a lot of work that's really big but I always think about my work as like taking up space in order to make more space instead of just like taking up space so that I can have all the space (laughs) very nice of you I think it like I mean it relates to this like other way like Ursula Le Guin is talking about this other way of like thinking about narrative structures or relationality And it's not to say that like that piece or that I feel like my voice is like something that can be like pushed over. Right. I mean, like the making of that piece of soft weight was like strenuous (laughs) and it's definitely like a thing. It's like a weird thing. That's not just. um, And it is impenetrable in its own way. It ain't going nowhere. It's not going anywhere. That's true. It's very solid in that way. But I think that's also why that woven surface ended up feeling so important because it does also give you like at least a visual. It does have a certain sense of lightness. And then it's like there's this kind of of like shadow play going on with it. And like you could stick an arm through or stick a leg through or something. And you can see through it but at the same time like it is very large and very solid and very much a presence and so I think that there's yeah there's something like in this way of making public work that feels very clear to me about situating a piece in a site that is like fundamentally relational and I think that's also the thing about the bag that I think is like really profound is that it also is like this fundamentally relational thing and it's like pulling together things it's pulling together if you're thinking about instead of a novel a sculpture it's like pulling together materials and then for me it's really like about paying attention to how those things meet and then like how those things will meet the eye how those things will meet someone's body yeah (laughs) I remember my best friend when we like first moved to New York and we're like we're gonna be artists and I remember she's a sculptor and I was like I just didn't know anything about sculpture. And she was like, let me give you a tip. She's like, you go, you look at a sculpture. She's like, you always have to read the materials list. And I was like, <laughs> why? I was like, so boring. And she was like, it's the whole thing. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, okay. It's and the I, whole thing. It's the whole thing. And I feel like that's so true for your work especially too where it's like what are the materials you're not going to just use a material just to use it yeah exactly I think yeah the materials themselves are really important and I think that one thing that was so exciting for me about this opportunity to make this piece is that I also it started to happen a little bit in shell but I start I really 
let myself go into this zone of obsession with how the materials are touching each other (laughs) and like how things are resting on each other. And it was super important to me that like the center of that piece be like suspended off the ground, that there was this like little space underneath or like that those pieces of webbing were like so laboriously tensioned together with the turnbuckle There's legit to make the en- endless loop. <laughs> <laughs> There's legit engineering that went into that. There is. It's true. <laughs> Seriously. I was study. I studied engineering for. I was studying engineering and art, and I almost just did a degree in engineering. <laughs> That's crazy. That means you're good at math. It's true. I am good at math. <laughs> Except for when it comes to number of hours it will take to sew X number of straps <laughs> in the sun <laughs> on the beach or whatever in the sand. Thing I feel like this is where you at some point had given yourself the permission to not be so obsessive about math like that you're gonna allow the piece to have those moments where you weren't sure how it's gonna turn out yeah so that it can then come into being with some breath and some life opposed to if you just knew exactly and then you put it up it's yeah then it's a basketball stadium it's what is it exactly yeah and that's i think that's why it's so much more exciting to me to be an artist rather than an engineer because it's like you have a certain degree of control or I felt like I had a certain degree of control about how that structure was going to come together. But then at a certain point, yeah, you don't know what's going to happen or like you're sewing it on site or like maybe you change your mind. And when you're an engineer, I've seen, you I've seen you change, change your mind. mind. Yeah. You don't get to be like, Oh, actually let's do it this way instead. It's like, cause it's also planned and there's all this, but when you're an artist, you can be like, yeah, that makes sense. That makes more sense. I'm yeah. going to change my mind right now. This is a better plan. <laughs> it's very I freeing. Saw it. I saw you it. You did it see cool. it. <laughs> it was cool. Because I think a lot of people who make stuff, they they get a little stuck because they don't mm-hmm. give themselves that that permission. Or they don't trust that like that part. Yeah. I think for me also making the larger work is like the double-edged sword of having to plan. And then the other edge is learning to let go (laughs) at a certain point and being like, I am just surrendering to whatever it takes to finish this object. And it might end up being different. And yeah, because when the rubber hits the road, it's, I'm trying to think of the things that would happen that happened when we were making that piece where it was like, the sewing machine doesn't work or or like, let's not cut all that angle iron. Let's just put the screws in or let's not cap the base with the webbing or try to do this like crazy stringing. Let's put in a few screws too, because it's actually fine to do that. Like it's great to obsess over every detail, but then sometimes you also just have to be like, yeah, let's get this done. And and not in a way that means like compromising the idea. That's That was like the debate about weaving the bottom side. And then I was like, yeah, you should just weave the bottom side, even though it means you're going to be here for two more days or whatever. I know, in that dust, in that dust. <laughs> yeah, that was like a compromise that too far. <laughs> but like changing some of the design elements, I think, yeah, it felt good to be able to do that. And like, it feels refreshing to be like, yeah, the plan is changing for the better. <laughs> Do you ever, like when you're making some of these large scale pieces for like on site at other places, 
have you come up against administrators that have been like, what's happening? Why is it taking so long? <laughs> what is going on? Once, yes, quite intensely. <laughs> oh, no. But I have, I have a lot of the places that I've worked with have been really like, like Socrates is really used to this, especially with that Emerging Artist Fellowship oh, exhibition was in the same boat. I think that they probably would say that I my piece was relatively under control, actually. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> compared to some of the other things that were happening. And then like in at the De Cordova, they were incredible and generous. And they were just like, yeah, it's just going to take the time that it takes. And that also took a long time because it was, I was installing in the snow <laughs> and, uh, and the mud. And it was quite intense, actually. But the piece I did in Spain, that that was a hustle that maybe the crunch started to feel like it was creating some tension. Just because that piece was meant to be like a orientation device for the show. And so it was part sculpture, part architecture, and that architecture needed to be used for other people's work. And so there were a lot of reasons that it was delayed, like materials coming late or like the tools that were supposed to be there were not on site. And I didn't have that much time because it was like during the middle of the semester. And then like the rigging crew needed to like rig my piece, but then they needed to like rig a bunch of other pieces. And it was like, they should probably rig my piece first because then other stuff has to go inside of it from other people. Oh my gosh. It was just a very ambitious show that was pulled off in a very short period of time, I think. Yeah. But I feel like mostly people have been very, like, I don't know, weirdly understanding. Like how like how y'all were. Weirdly, it, like, it's just going to get done. Eventually. It's just going to get done. You. And we're going to just figure it out. Yeah. Because yeah. at the end of the day, like, we're making a piece of work. We're not building a car or spaceship. Yeah, or like a house or something. Yeah. Or a submarine. <laughs> yeah. Elizabeth, this has been so nice. Yeah, thank you. This has been really fun. <laughs> thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And keep in touch via our Instagram, at To The Lighthouse Works, for any podcast or residency-related news. And don't forget to check out all the additional content that accompanies each episode on our website, lighthouseworks.us. I also want to say thank you to all the artists and writers who have come through our program. We are routinely in awe of what you do. And I want to say thank you for keeping us afloat. That's all for me for now. See you next time on More Friends. <laughs>